0: Here's your host, Chris Cooper. Hello, this is Chris Cooper, and a big
1: welcome to the Business Elevation Show on Voice America. It's just great to be back again for. Yet another week, I'm just realising it's the 491st unique episode of the show. So 11 and a half years, which is quite incredible. And I mentioned that because my guest today, we, we thought, well, oh, maybe we'd last done this maybe five years ago, maybe six, and just realised it's eight years ago since Mandy was last on the show. So, uh, yeah, incredible. Um, I, wherever you're listening from, I hope you're well. I hope you're keeping positive in this very strange environment, which is this world at the moment um and uh i hope you enjoyed the show last week it was uh it was an amazing um conversation last week with jeffrey s buchanan jeffrey had been a three-star general it's the first three-star general i've ever interviewed in my my time on the show and he'd looked after seventy thousand troops and he'd, he'd looked after um five major di- uh, hurricane disasters uh with um for the american military and the Washington as well, and um, and had known the president, so we didn't get into that. Um, but really interesting, talking about leading in a crisis. And, you know, sometimes we're there with our businesses, and we might have, uh, you know, 10, 20, 30, 100, possibly even a 1,000 employees, but 70,000. Uh, and some of the life and death decisions and uh, situations that uh, Jeffrey found himself in. Uh, absolutely fascinating and it leads on really beautifully to today's guests and today's show uh, we're going to talk about um uh, it's entitled an officer not a gentleman which is my favorite uh, new book at the moment absolutely brilliant um written by by mandy hickson uh, and um you know i think this is just an incredible story and gives you an insight into into something that we we don't always get the best insight. We might've seen Top Gun, some of you, and got a, a feeling of um, of what it must be like um, flying um, and learning to fly. But uh, if you read this book, An Officer Not a Gentleman, you get a, a really real sense of what it's really like. So flying a multi-million pound fighter jet in hostile territory, it's not an everyday career, is it? And it comes with a high degree of pressure and responsibility. And um, interesting, though, we're going to continue the military theme today. Uh, My guest, Mandy Hickson, joined the Royal Air Force in 1994, and she flew the Tornado GR4 on the front line, um, I believe about 50 uh, sorties um, across um, Iraq and in hostile territory. Uh, It's included the no-fly zone over Iraq. Um, Since leaving the RAF, she retrained as a facilitator, a coach in human performance factors, And now, I mean, over the eight years, I think when I spoke to Mandy last, she was maybe doing a couple of major speeches a month. She's now doing 28 in a month. I mean, um, on one day, she actually online did seven uh, all in one day. So she's become an incredibly highly demanded speaker. And she shares her insights from um, her experiences with some of the most successful organizations across the globe. And she talks about the strategies and behaviors that were adopted uh, in these high-stakes situations. Um, her recently launched um, book, best- it's a bestseller, An Officer Not a Gentleman, His uh, Inspirational Journey to Becoming a Pioneering Female Fighter Pilot. And um, she was only the second uh, female to ever fly a tornado. So really um, pioneering and having to overcome the stereotypes and the existing paradigm around uh, being a female fighter pilot rather than a typical male not that any of them are typical please don't think that because they're not they're extraordinary so um big welcome to mandy
2: hickson thank you so much chris i had to say when you when you read it all like that my goodness i actually think gosh i'd quite like to meet that woman she sounds quite impressive <laughs> i hope i live up to all expectations <laughs>
1: <laughs> well the lovely thing about this is is you have got an incredible cv and an incredible experience and your book sort of took me there in you know an experience i will never expect exp- being in a, in a fast jet uh like and the situations you've been in but it really kind of t- kind of took me there but what i think is really fascinating is is that you know you are you are you know a very a very humble individual and we can often put people onto it a, like a, an unattainable pedestal through their experience but actually you know everybody's just a human being yeah. going through their life experience aren't they?
2: no absolutely and i think it's it's really interesting actually because when i do my speaking you know you you start off and you you know there's a lot of wow factor there's a lot of big stories and then you actually just get down to the root cause and the the real you behind these stories and actually people go oh my goodness, this is just so transferable. This is so normal. And I've got to share with you this one story, which was, it literally happened last week. And I was speaking at an event and I've just been out for lunch with a friend and I was just telling her about it. So it's really fresh in my mind, but it just shows how real my life is. Um, At the end of my session, um, a lady stood up and she said, Mandy, you know, you've alluded to the fact you had teenage boys and, you know, these your boys must be so influenced by you um you know are they really you know high achieving high flyers have they set their sights you know how how are they with regards to their attitude towards women having an incredible yes. role model like you and I went yeah they're not I did say a, a word which is probably yes. not what I'm going to repeat on the radio um to to the uh, the fellow public out there but I said no they are absolute some things and uh, i said you know this is the real world is i've got teenage boys and teenage boys are challenging and we all go through those same problems with teenagers whether you are a former fast jet pilot and motivational speaker or whether you're you know a stay-at-home mum, it doesn't matter you're still going to have those same challenges and it's very very leveling and makes you very humble
1: yes um absolutely um it, it it certainly does and you know mine are exactly the same with me i think they they think um they think I'm not very intelligent. Nice. <laughs> so mind me of it regularly, and uh, yeah, and, um, yeah, and uh, I've got a slight challenge at the moment because I've got one knocking at the window, and I've actually locked <laughs> him out.
2: Oh so, dear! So well, would you quite... like me to tell a story then, while you run round? You,
1: you just go and tell a very quick story, and I'm, this is a very human uh, side of having teenage <laughs> children because he's forgot his key. But you tell a little story.
2: I will. Uh, I can certainly do that. Yes, and absolutely. I'll
1: be back in about thirty-five seconds, something like oh, that. My
2: word. that is quick, isn't it? Yes, I have to say because it has been a genuinely a pleasure to be able to go out to share my story. And you know what's really lovely as well is, I hadn't really realised the impact it would have on so many different people at so many different levels. Uh, yesterday I was speaking at a school, um, and the day before it's primary school children, so we're talking what five to eleven year olds. In the afternoon yesterday, I was speaking to 11 to 16 year olds. And then I happened to know some of the people's children or I knew the the adults, the parents of these children who were in the audience. And, um, you know, and actually I had all these messages coming through saying, oh, my goodness, my daughter's just seen you at the school. She's really started thinking about her career. This is really spurred on to think a bit differently. And of course, I'm not there to encourage people to be fast jet pilots, but you are there to push them to think bigger you know right. have bigger dreams than than perhaps the normal
1: yeah well well done I tell you a pro I, I, I was, I was <laughs> We well won't on. tell
2: you that chris actually just literally ran out the room while Good. i was doing that. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes. yeah, it's never happened that before but has happened to me i did lose um i was being interviewed on a, a show with with actually quite a big live audience all, all tweeting in as well and um her internet collapsed and i found myself on my own for 45 minutes so that's my uh that was oh my wow!
2: And, and did anyone <laughs> notice that she had disappeared? <laughs> well, they, I
1: I was a bit confused, and they they people who were sending messages did kind of let me know, and that there was just me there. And uh, I said, okay, well, let's just talk for 45 minutes. (laughs)
2: That's impressive. And that's without any music breaks. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I had no no breaks at all. So tell us what's been happening to you since our last interview in
2: 2014. Gosh, well, when you said this to me, 2014, it's such a long time ago. And I think I left the Air Force in 2011. So I was really new onto the scene at that stage. I was still finding my feet. Um, And in those days, I was doing a lot of facilitated training work. So I was working with airlines. Um, I was going in and talking a lot of um, about health and safety, threat and error management. So I was sort of utilising what was my real core skills in aviation and taking those into business. And then as I've sort of developed myself and my own business models, I realised that actually the keynote speaking side is really pertinent. And it's the human factor elements that basically keep us safe in the air keep us and enable us to be very profitable and have highly successful teams when we're working in the, in the corporate world. And so it's those lessons, those human factor elements that are the things that actually I really, really focus on and share. How to build trust within organizations, how to make decisions under pressure, how to be accountable for those decisions. And the one thing that I would always come back to is, you know, people say, and how are you going to do that? And I say, through storytelling. And you and I know the power of the stories. You mm. can put as many facts and figures on a wall, and no one will be able to quote you any of them afterwards. But you tell a story; it will be rooted in people's brains, and they will be able to quote it back to you ten years later.
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. And there's some great, great stories in your book. Um, as as, as a lot in there, and some really um, quite yeah, quite fascinating ones. And about um, you know, about teams, etc. But just before we we. But let's let's just give you a few minutes just to explain, you know, just tell us what inspired you to become a, fight, a fighter pilot in the in the first instance, and, and just just quickly try and articulate the journey that you have to yeah. go on to be able to do something like that.
2: Sure. So, I mean, you alluded to the fact we've all seen Top Gun. So, you know, p- people have that image as a fast, as a fast jet pilot and they, they they see that Tom Cruise, that Maverick situation. But what they don't see is the years and years of toil to get you to that point. So my dream started at the age of 13. As an air cadet, I joined an organisation that's organised by the Royal Air Force to encourage youngsters and give them an insight into that. And even if people don't join the military as a consequence of joining those air cadets or the army cadets, what they are getting there is some really wonderful experience outside of school, which can really build their character, you know, their leadership abilities, their decision making, all of those things. And you often find it's the people that perhaps struggle a little bit at school that don't fit in. They'll sometimes join that organisation and they will massively build their own confidence. And that's what it did for myself. Um, While I was there, I flew and then I really had that sight, I set my sights then on becoming a fast jet pilot. But at that stage of life, women weren't allowed to be pilots in the Air Force, so the option of the career there was not there. So I have just chosen myself an impossible dream. And out of about 3000 applicants, you know, the competition is still fierce, only one person would normally end up in a fast jet cockpit. So you know, to get into it in the first place is extremely difficult. So I started to chip away at the impossible dream. At 17, I was awarded a flying scholarship that gave me 30 hours of free flying. And from there, I gained my private pilot's license. I then went off to university. I joined another club around flying the university air squadron. And in my second year, they changed the rules. I applied to join and I failed all of the computer-based aptitude tests. Now, those tests are basically designed to test things like hand-to-eye coordination, your mental agility, decision-making abilities. And you can only take them twice in your lifetime. I took them a second year and I failed them again. And so really, that should have been the end of the line. But it was right at the stage where they've only just opened the doors to women. And my boss of this club, this university air squadron, just looked at it and said, hold on, mate. you're a really capable pilot. Why can't you pass these tests? And so he started to challenge the system on my behalf and really look into it. And he found out that the majority of women that were taking these tests were failing them, about 70 percent. And the majority of men passed them, about 70% passed. So we were seeing an unconscious bias that was existing within their testing system that they'd had no idea about because they'd never been tested on women before. And so actually it just shows me that sometimes we have something, a system in place. And if we don't ever have people that challenge that norm, that challenge Mm. the 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 everyday, then we'll never get change as a consequence. And that's why, you know, our youngsters are changing the the way that work is done at the moment. You know, COVID has changed the way we work. And it's about actually challenging the norm and saying, okay, we've got this new norm that's coming in. Is it going to work? And is that is that something we want to take forward and make best practice? Mm -hmm. And fortunately for myself, the Air Force were willing to listen and they did take me on in the end. Um, not just initially as an air trafficker, which they did, an air traffic controller. They then gave me the opportunity to become a pilot. But they did tell me I was being taken on as a test case, and they wanted to see how far I got <laughs> before I failed, which was really nice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think well, uh, it's clearly there's a, a, a fascinating culture in there as well. I was uh, I was quite, um, I found it quite intriguing, the level of alcohol intake at certain times. <laughs> that, uh, I wondered if that was um, was necessary yeah. to deal with the stress. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think things have changed a bit now. I, I, they really have changed a bit now, actually. It's a very different culture within the within the forces now. We see, you know, it's all about getting, you know, becoming buff, going to the gym after work. In our day, it was very much about going to happy hour, uh, hitting the bar at five o'clock, which is not ideal. And But it was very much that was the stereotype. It was that whole play hard, work hard, let off steam. Um, so, yeah, I think there was quite a lot you know a lot of stress relief was was basically found through alcohol consumption which is you know not ideal as we know
1: and how how much did you have to adapt to um to being a you know being a, a female in a man's world did you have to do do you have to you know join in with the lads or
2: yeah. No, absolutely, Chris. I, I I didn't realize how much I'd morphed my behaviour actually until I was on an exercise out in America. Actually, just outside Nellis at uh, sorry, outside Las Vegas at a place called Nellis Air Force Base. Fantastic flying. Um, red flag is like Top Gun, and I was flying with a um, a French navigator. And I w- got dressed up in in a you know, really nice outfit one evening to go out for dinner. Sadly, not just the two of us. It was the whole squadron. And um, Michel, the the French navigator, said, oh, Mandy, oh, you're looking beautiful this evening. At which point the guy next to him literally sort of smacked him across the back of the head and said, you can't say that to Mandy. She's one of the boys. And Michel turned back with this wonderful Gaelic shrug and he said, Pah, you Brits, you have so much to learn about women. And I absolutely <laughs> loved it because it became this real pivotal moment for myself where I desperately realized that I had been trying so hard to fit in. I'd been morphing my behavior, changing who I was. And actually you're never going to be able to bring your true self to work and be able to perform at your maximum level when you're fitting in. It's about finding belonging. And that would take me about another year or so on the squadron to do that.
1: Yeah. 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 And I think the, you know, the macho nature of it came home in the in the book for me when you know, the Americans introduced themselves. Um, I don't know whether you could tell yep. that tell us tell that story but that's uh really amused me and...
2: yeah <laughs> yeah we won't, let's not go into the details because that was, no, it was you've banned. got to buy
1: the book you've got to buy the book to read buy the book one. to
2: find out the story but but do you not think just watching top gun as well um I, I watched top gun the first one obviously you know before watching i've seen it many times but i thought i'd watch it again mm. before watching the new one maverick and you realize just how sort of misogynistic that sort of society was in those days yeah. and you when you read it across to today's environment it doesn't particularly translate that well yeah. and i think they did a lovely sort of tilt of their hat towards it in in Top Gun Maverick but there was still a little bit of that behavior there that whole you're a girl and I know that we had Phoenix in there as a female fighter pilot you know and she was right up there but it was still that sort of slight feeling of that misogynistic environment
1: yeah and I guess in those days you know business mirrored that to sport sport mirrored it as well Uh, and that's all starting to to break down and change is happening and i guess you know at the moment we're in a world where you know the uh the the the, the, the ways that we had before are being highlighted as being not acceptable now in many 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 areas yeah. you know from politics and all or behaviors in all sorts of areas business um and the way we've, we've carried on um and behaved for, for and, the better and, thank
2: goodness for the better yeah.
1: For the better, so we're going to go to commercial break now. And after the commercial break, we're going to find out. We're going to talk about team building. We're going to talk about leadership. We're going to talk about confidence. We're going to talk about um, you know systems type thinking and uh, you know the lessons that are really relevant to us as uh, as because I think probably here we've probably got more business people and we've got fighter pilots. So I think we need to translate it, this for um for, for for business business folks and uh, entrepreneurs and and the like and organizational executives, um, not pilots uh, necessarily. Some of you might be, you never know. So we'll be back again with you after the break with uh, Mandy Hickson. Do join us in just a couple of minutes. It's going to get exciting.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Email info at BeMoreAchieveMore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you.
1: Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa
2: Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper.
1: Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Mandy Hickson. We're talking about an officer, not a gentleman. We're talking about flying fast uh, jets. And actually, something that's just has just come to me as I as I consider the book is that you had to you had to keep learning and learning and learning and learning, uh, and there were different layers of this because it wasn't just get a pilot's license and jump into a a fast jet. Uh, it was it was you know you move to the next level of the journey and the next one. There's more to learn and there's uh, and there's more complexity and there's. Uh, yeah. What, what can you, and what I'm, I'm kind of mindful of is as people here will be listening in and thinking about maybe thinking about their own learning journeys, and that often in business, people don't put the commitment into learning as much as they could. You had to do it in a very intense way because the stakes were critical.
2: Yeah, and also you're doing it in a very structured way as well. Yeah. So- you know, if if you think it's, it took really five years on average, about five years to get to the front line, to get to fly operationally. And in each of those five years, you're going through one stage at a time. So you start by flying something at 120 miles an hour. The next aircraft is 240. The next one is 420. And each time you're building up complexity, not just of the speed that you're flying, but of the missions that you're doing as well. So you're building in things like... Um, combat, you know, flying two airplanes against each other in a dogfighting scenario once you start flying fast jets. So the fast jet training itself is broken down to flying the airplane on one course. Then you go over the road and you learn tactical weapons. So you learn about how to drop weapons. You learn about dogfighting. You learn about flying it in combat at low level, like in the Maverick film, you know, at that very low level with a wingman. And all of those things are building up your capacity to deal with the here and now. But one thing as well that we always do is we do a lot of work in the simulator, especially when you're getting onto flying the the more expensive jets, because they can utilize that simulator time so much more efficiently and cost effectively. But what you do in the simulator is you'll practice all the emergencies. So you're building up not just um, a run of of a sortie that you're about to fly, but you're building up all these different competencies as well things like how do I communicate well? You're building up your decision-making capability, um, your situational awareness. So when we say situational awareness, it's often this sort of strange phrase. People can describe it in different ways, but to me, it's always just seeing the bigger picture. And I think so often, you know, we can funnel in, we, we tune in on certain things, especially in the business world as well. I want to put you in the context that you've got a big deadline coming up and you're so fixated on your task that you've got that tunnel vision. And actually, when you're feeling like that, we start to lose some of the um, ability to, to, to function. Our senses start to shut down. And the first of our senses that we lose is our hearing. And so if you're in the working environment and you notice that a colleague stops responding to you, rather than thinking, well, they're rude, actually recognize that they are probably now at cognitive overload or they're at capacity. So what can you do as a really good wingman to help them out? So it's that whole recognizing what's going on with our team to actually enable them to perform better. And so also to be able to recognize that inside yourself. And actually, we often see that when you're flying. So you'll be sitting in the back seat and your student in the front seat is really hitting overload. And then air traffic control gives them a message. There's no response. You know they are now at maximum capacity. They can deal with no more information. And so the more you do in the simulator, the better placed you are when you get in the air, when actually there is a real life threat and you are flying at very low levels and at very fast speeds, so you want people to basically have as much capacity to be able to deal with it. They often describe it as water skiing behind the aircraft. Mm. You know, if you are if you are in, the, in the, on the water ski right behind the aircraft, you are not in the aircraft, so you are operating about two seconds behind it, and that is not a good place to be. You almost need to be ahead of the airplane so you can anticipate what's about to happen and make decisions much quicker.
1: Mm. Yeah. Wow. A, a lot to i mean the situation there kind of does the heavy lifting for you 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 have to act but i think that's a really great point about overload and being being mindful about capacity and what what i experienced reading your book was you know you you yourself experiencing overload from time to time and it impacting confidence yeah. um it- but you know there's uh, there's there's highs and lows of going on a, a journey like this isn't there uh, quite yeah, literally off. and
2: yeah, there are. I mean, I failed at many, many different hurdles throughout the entire entirety of my training. And one thing that really, you know, embedded and came home to me was when I was at the very final stages of fast jet training, and I was just three trips away from graduating. So everything I've worked towards, I'm 24 years old, since I first sat in that aircraft at the age of 13. So 11 years of my journey, with many, many failings on the way. And I failed a flight. And in the back of my mind, I instantly went back to the default of, you never pass those aptitude tests.
0: Mm. So
2: you're not good enough. That imposter syndrome hit me. I started to spiral down. My confidence took a knock. And it was my course mates that recognized this. And they took me out. And they basically got me on bikes. Um, and they'd stuck little wings on. And we started to cycle around this big parade square, sort of doing the one thing that I would have been failing in the air, which was called battle turns. And it's when basically two airplanes are trying to basically turn to the left or right. but in a synchronized way. So if you were just to turn left through 90 degrees, you're now behind your wingman. So you've got to plan ahead and you basically have got to come up to a turn, think how you're gonna do it. You both pull up, you would cross at a perpendicular angle. and When you roll out, you're in perfect formation. And that's why I was failing. I wasn't getting the geometry of this right in my head. And so I was so focused on the numbers, I was not seeing the bigger picture. And this is what my course mates recognised. They took me down. We started practising it by cycling around. Obviously, we didn't have the vertical separation. It wasn't Harry Potter. Um, (laughs) And suddenly everything fell into place. And I suddenly realised, oh, my goodness, this is so easy. Why hadn't I been able to do it before? And it was because I'd been stuck in that rut. I had had the tunnel vision. I had been fixated on my task and I kept on doing it in the same way and I kept on getting the same results. It was only my course mates, my trusted wingmen who recognised that was a different way of doing it. And it's why when I talk to businesses a lot, you know, we talk a lot about gender diversity and cultural diversity, but the area we don't focus as much on because it's not as comfortable is cognitive diversity. It's about having people within our teams that do think a little bit differently. Um, And I think so often, you know, when you have got that cognitive diversity, it leads to perhaps more difficult conversations, but those conversations will be challenging and you might get a different response. And that's what those guys gave me that night.
1: Yeah. And it was a lovely example of, of teamwork, really helping a colleague out, because actually in some ways you were you were colleagues and teammates, but you were also in competition with each other.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, there are limited spaces on the courses that are coming up. And by helping me get through, they had potentially jeopardised their advancement by, you know, up to a year because it just depends where the slots come up. But actually when it was reported up, our, our squadron commander was so so impressed by the camaraderie that he has within his power the ability to keep somebody on as a creamy where they can recognise the best person to stay as an instructor, the cream of the crop. So it's like mm. top whales Wales in, in the UK. And it meant that the, the entire course did go off and graduate onto our aircraft types of choice, which was a fantastic ending to a, a really, really tough course.
1: Wow. And tell us a little bit about wing commander Ray L because you –
2: yeah, so
1: I really did actually.
2: Yeah, so I was at a stage where I was really I I personally was at cognitive overload as well, and it was in the navigation stages. And I again I'd failed a flight. Um, by the way, I just want to say everyone fails trips. It's not unusual, and it's just part mm. of the everyday. It's like doing an advanced driving test twice a day every day for ten months. Yeah. So it really is tough. And so I'd failed a flight, and I was again sort of starting to talk myself down. And it was a beautiful sunny day and he was the chief instructor. So he's what's called an A1 instructor. So he's the very top of the top. And he just came in and he gave me this route and he said, gosh, wouldn't it be awful if you uh, had an emergency around there? And I sort of thought, oh, my goodness, he's telling me where I'm going to get the emergency. Now, knowing this information enabled me to think, right, right. I'm going to have to divert into this airfield. I can get all of the, the charts out for that airfield. I can prepare. I can even write the radio frequencies on the map. And so I can really get ahead of the game. And I flew this trip with him and it went literally to clockwork. And when we landed, he said, Mandy, that was absolutely brilliant. Top marks. You know, you've passed with flying colours. And I sort of said to him, it was probably after the event, actually. And I've said it to him many, many times. We have a reunion. And I said it to him just last year and I saw him and I said, You know, you didn't have to do that. And he said, you know what, when I read your book, he said, I felt so full of love and and so proud of, of really how you had seen what had happened in reality was that as an instructor, when you see someone's got potential, it's so easy to break people. You can just keep on loading them up and loading them up and everyone will break and everyone within business will but it's how much do you want those people that when you see they've got something special, that they can do it and all they're doing is lacking confidence, be the person that makes that that advancement rather than breaks them. And yeah. that is your power as an instructor or as an examiner. It's your power as a colleague in the workplace or as a boss or as a leader. You know, help your people grow. That Use that magic word empowerment to your advantage. Don't be the one that just constantly overloads people to breaking point.
1: Yeah, yeah beautiful Lo- lovely story and and during your your journey uh, you you were uh, I think it was when you were given your wings you were also given an uh, award as uh, an outstanding leader from your experiences of of um of jet fast jets what um would you describe the, the qualities of a an outstanding leader to be
2: I think I think when you look at leadership it's about recognizing that leadership is not a title firstly leadership is action so we we demonstrate the most junior person within a business can demonstrate leadership skills it's about role modeling core values what you what is true to your soul to you, to your inner inner spirit and i think so often we pick values within our businesses and we say these are our values trust uh selflessness you know um we want to move forward together and all these values and they're just things that are written on the wall but a good leader will be bringing those values to life they will be authentic in how they do it. And I think authenticity we have seen in many of our leaders has been lacking over the last few years. And people can see through people now. You know, it's really evident when someone is not being true to themselves, being authentic. So authenticity to myself is is right up there. I think having a power of communication is really important as well. So If you think what you're doing as a leader, you're often bringing people on a journey to achieve a goal that was not possible as individuals. Often that journey will be tough. There will be challenges. And often it might be that people don't want to to do that. And so your ability as a leader is to basically motivate others to come on that journey and so i think your communication your power your ability to to reach everyone at the right level for them is very very important as well so you've got those key attributes personally for myself are authenticity um it's about communication skills and it's about the ability to to motivate and inspire others around us yeah and then that
1: authenticity um is it is acceptable in a a situation when you're maybe you're, you're flying a a 30 30 35 million pound jet uh yep. to be to be vulnerable
2: yeah i think well it's not necessarily about being vulnerable so basically as a, as a leader as a strong leader and leadership is really tough sometimes you know so there might be times where it, it's got to be more command and control OK, we've got to accept that. So you're in the military, we're in a life or death situation and you say something and it's got to be actioned. You don't want people arguing with that or debating it. But there will be other times when it's not life or death, where it's really important to bring your team on the journey, where it's all about the asking and enabling them to to basically come up with their suggestions. And actually, even in time critical situations, we use a, a model called T-DODAR uh, for our decision making. And the first thing that we say is T, how much time do we have? Well, even in a fast jet situation, you've probably got two or three minutes, maybe. It's not often it's 30 seconds. And so you say, I've got four minutes. Right. The next one is I diagnose the problem. I, as the leader, don't tell you. I don't say, Chris, this is the problem. I say, Chris, what is the problem? You then say what you see. Because guess what? If you've got a hierarchical gradient and you've got someone that's very junior, they will, and if you as the leader say, this is the problem, they will say, yes, it is. Yes. But you're never getting their opinion as to even what the starting point of the problem is and so basically if you ask them you're going to, you might see a very different perspective one that you hadn't seen why because you were using prior experience to basically go down you know a a completely uh unconscious bias that you're you're heading in a certain track um and so so basically we, we ask our team for the diagnosis once we have that starting point we ask our team again for options so i don't say chris this is what we're going to do i say chris what do you think we should do? Now I'll give you a couple of minutes to think about it and you would then come up with your options. Once you have brought those options to me, I as the leader then make the decision. So it's not a collaborative decision-making model. It's it's option generation, but for the accountability to sit with the leadership. Yeah. They, I I make the I make the decision then. I assign the tasks and I review it. So T Dodar, assign and review. And it's it's a really good way of doing it. You, you've probably heard of things like the OODA loop, you know, and it's a similar one to that. It's basically saying our decision making is not linear; it's a circular, ongoing process that constantly needs to be reviewed.
1: That's, that's a really, it's a really interesting conversation. This because you know the different leadership styles, and some leaders will be, will will would diagnose, look for options, and decide. But however, some would. Uh... You know would spend an awful lot of time in the options and you know need some help from others to make the ultimate decision and um, but in your scenario when when time is often limited and uh, and decisions are so life and death it actually is a you got prepared to be decisive ultimately
2: yeah you do and I think that accountability it's one thing that we're really, we're taught at a very early stage so in the military, you're sent for as an officer, you have nine months of leadership training. I can't think of any other career whereby you're taught how to be a leader before you're taught the tools of your trade. Yeah, You're going into banking and someone says, right, I'm going to send you on a six month management course. You go, really? Am I not going to learn how to become a banker first? I'm going to learn about finance. And if I get good enough, then I might get sent on a management course if I'm lucky. Yes. Or you might make this awful assumption that just because you're good at banking and good at finance that you would make a good leader. You might not. Mm -hmm. you know. So it's a really interesting one, isn't it? So the reason they do it 180 out is because right from the outset of people's careers, they're wanting people to step up in leadership roles. And even as a junior team member on a course, I'm sorry, on a squadron, you are given tasks constantly that will expand your own leadership capabilities.
1: Yeah, yeah, yes. And it makes me wonder, you know, actually, you know, it would be helpful to introduce management and leadership to people young on, young, because, uh, you know, I'm sure you're the same. You know, I find myself explaining to people who are in their 40s and 50s, what's the difference between leadership, management and coaching, for example?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And they
1: they don't know. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> no, no, and it's really interesting. I, I love that analogy actually where they say management is a circle, managers will just manage the circle and a leader will move that circle into the next stage and create a new circle. And that's what it is, isn't it? It's about we can all manage a system. You can learn that through project management, through just, you know, following the rules almost. But a leader inspires change, I think. And that's where you start to see the difference between management and leadership.
1: Fantastic. Well, we're going to go to commercial break now. And after after the break, we'll you will kind of move into you know a scenario uh, of of actually being on some serious missions and what you learned in those uh, in those situations when uh, you know the stakes were high i know there were some um, experiences in in the learning in in the you know the learning that you had of uh, of uh, sliding a jet sideways and things like that which i'm sure were very helpful when you got into the critical uh, situation but let's uh, let's talk about uh, what you learned as you flew missions, um, and how that relates to, you know, ex, you know, excelling the way that you're operating your business. So, I'll be back again in just a couple of minutes. Do join us after the break.
0: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk.
2: Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy.
0: You were tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper.
1: Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Mandy Hickson. And uh, wel- wel- welcome back. And uh, I just managed to meet one of Mandy's sons, I think, which was uh, Rich. Re- was really nice. Uh, hi there. <laughs> Hello.
2: I now. I've just missed him. It's his eighteenth birthday yesterday. Oh, oh happy
1: eighteenth birthday. birthday! Brilliant. <laughs>
2: He's just gone. Yeah.
1: Brilliant. And uh, Mandy met my my, my um, Labradoodle pup as well. Uh, just as the show. Going
2: on me. here, I tell you, behind
1: no. the scenes. Thirteen-year-old <laughs> <laughs> knocking at the window, saying, "Let me in. I've lo- I've forgotten my key." <laughs> uh, it's been uh, been been fun. Um, Good life. <laughs> So t- tell us, tell us, Mandy, I, I mean, the first thing I've just got to ask before we, we go into this, what on earth is it like flying a fast jet, you know, from low altitude, high altitude, twisting, turning, dogfight? You know, what on earth is the the, the, the feeling like, the sensation? How do you describe it?
2: So I suppose it's completely exhilarating. I, I sort of describe it as dancing in the sky sort of feel to it. You know, it's there's a freedom of of, of flight that you don't get in any other environment. Because you're not restricted, obviously, in any of the axes. you know, there is literally up, down, left, right, you know. Um, but my my favorite environment definitely is always low level. Uh, and I love the rush of the the speed of the of the ground going past actually. And um we used to do some fantastic flying in Canada actually, up in Goose Bay, up in Labrador. Uh, So Newfoundland, that sort of area. And um, oh, my goodness, flying at low level in some areas up there, we can go down to 100 feet. So you're traveling about 520 miles an hour at 100 feet. And I'll never forget um, They basically you position at that stage the uh, rad alt, the radio altimeter, which tells you literally it sends a ping out from the bottom of the airplane to say this is how high you are actually above the ground physically rather than it being on a pressure setting. And so we were flying along and I was I was basically judging it. And the altimeter, sorry, the radar at that stage is really, really erratic because it just can't pick up the ground that quickly and that low. And so you're doing it on a visual picture. And I was positioning myself on the tops of these trees, which I thought, okay, the trees are probably about 30 feet, 40 feet high. They're huge forests. And I been flying along and suddenly I realised my nav went, oh my gosh, and I went, what? And he goes, These are saplings and they were tiny, tiny, Uh. smaller than a Christmas tree, basically just the top of a tree that has just started growing. And we were thinking it was a forest. Oh basically had just been planted. And I was basically positioning myself about 50 feet above those. And I was going like, oh my gosh, I was so low. And it's the rush of the ground at that point. You know, you're literally, we were doing um. Uh, what's called combat as well. So, we were doing evasion with a, a bounce aircraft who was looking to attack you, and you're hitting targets within five seconds. You, you're basically just focused on what is going on in front of you to ensure that you're clear of the ground. And your nav is doing all the lookout. And so, that's where your communication skills between the two of you is phenomenal. You know, you're literally going, I'm, I'm heads out, I'm looking only forwards. And he's like, You carry on looking forwards because basically my life is in your hands. And he's like, Got his neck literally on rotation out the back.
1: Amazing! I think you showed me a photo once of you, where someone had taken from a a mountain top had the, the, oh. the plane sideways, and you could visibly see it was you from the photo. Yeah, just
2: waving, casually yeah. waving at the camera. <laughs> That's, brilliant!
1: Very, yeah. very, very, very cool. So you flew fifty missions over Iraq. You know what's what? Um, did you learn from, you know the, the systemic nature of of you know flying a mission. Because there's a lot of, there's lot a of, you know, huge yeah. teamwork, isn't it? It's uh, huge and, teamwork. And what, what, and, and... What, explain, explain it to us, explain.
2: Yeah. So I think the first thing to say is that you're part of a huge coalition of aircraft. So we're working with the Americans, some Canadian forces. We had a couple of French guys out there. And you're based in four different countries. So Saudi, they're down in Bahrain. And you've got all these different aircraft types who have all got different roles. And so... You know, for example, on one night we were tasked um, actually to go on a bombing mission just to south of Baghdad. And it, was, uh, it was just after President Bush Jr. had just come into power. And it was basically we were we were tasked to destroy some fiber optic centers. And um, it was a huge package. And as we turn to the north, you know, we are working really closely with our American friends who are going to suppress enemy air defences. So they're going to go in first and they're going to use sort of electronic warfare to stop the missiles from being able to fire at you because um, it will send out an actual sort of like basically a wiggly amp, which will stop it from firing. Um, but your timings are absolutely critical. So, again, you're working really, really closely. So you, the, your plan is planned to the nth degree. You know, everything is done in such detail to work out a that you are not going to have a mid-air collision with another aeroplane. So that you're you're actually um deconflicted in time, in space, so height and in time deconflictions as well, but that you're also within the window when that enemy um enemy defenses have been suppressed for. So you have minute basically it's done in seconds, you know, you have about a five-second window. And so the planning that goes into it is phenomenal. And then once you go on that, this whole – my biggest fear was always, gosh, please don't let me let my team down. And one of the biggest stressors was getting up on the secure radios. It was called a half-quick radio. And you had to actually physically put in 20 different frequencies to make sure this radio went secure. And at the end of it, you got this reassuring beep, beep, beep to say, it's gone secure. But you're doing it and it's right behind you. It's basically in line with your right buttock. And it's it's behind you slightly. You're looking down. You're sweating in 40 degrees of heat and you're inputting 20 different frequencies. Imagine trying to put a mobile phone number as quickly as you can before the next tube stop, you know, the underground stop comes. And there's so much going on. And you're thinking, please don't really, if you put one frequency in incorrectly, the whole thing won't work. You go back and you miss your check-in. And if you miss your check-in, you can't actually get airborne with your formation, and they'll call up the spare. So the oh, pressure man. is enormous, even from that walking, the planning, the walkout. I mean, walking out, you get to the aircraft, and every man I was with, and I was only ever flew with men, so every man would always have a wee by the aircraft right before he gets airborne because you don't want to be flying dehydrated. Mm. That's my first problem. I've got all my flying kit on, and the only way I can get have a wee is to take all my flying kit off whereas they can unzip from the bottom. I can't. So already I am 45 minutes, maybe an hour later in my Mm weeing cycle, let's just say. So that's another stressor is the fact that I'm potentially going to be trying to fly hydrated, but not too hydrated, because I don't want to then have a problem of needing to go to the toilet in the aircraft, which there was no facility to do.
1: No, no. Wow. Amazing. And and you had experiences um, when you got, Five minutes left now i still have to um, move on but you um you had experiences where you you, you had a um you had a uh, a rocket coming your way yeah, and,
2: um... we, we had a very close call actually yeah so mm-hmm. it was one of my penultimate nights i was going home the next day and i happened to be leading my first ever combat mission that night and we were shot at by a surface-to-air missile And it was launched in what's called a heat seeking mode. So rather than a radar sensor locking onto your aircraft, it was done in heat seeking. So basically it's looking for a hot space and it heads straight towards it. Fortunately, my navigator spotted it coming up. Um, it, it spotted the the flare at the launch of the aircraft of the missile, sorry, and he called break right. Um, I instantly did this manoeuvre, which was one I had practiced many times before, and we put out our flares, which are basically mini pyrotechnics. That oh, in fact, anyone that watched Top Gun Maverick, that's what they put out the flares. And they, they decoyed the missile and it exploded about a mile and a half away, maybe two miles away, which in aeronautical terms is, is a relatively narrow miss. And, yeah, that whole complexity of that mission then basically changed because we were then tasked um, not just to carry on on our reconnaissance sortie that we were on, but to task to basically carry out a, an attack on a, on a missile site and um, a radar station. And basically we were running out of fuel. Uh, And as I was leading my first ever mission, all the decisions would be made by me. And so I instantly applied T DODAR. I asked my team for options. And then under their instruction or or their input, should I say, I made the decision that we would head down into Saudi Arabia and try to locate a tanker, an airborne tanker, which is like an airborne petrol station. Uh, And when we got down there, it wasn't our British one. Ours had broken and it had been replaced by an American tanker. And I had no clearance to tank from it. I'd never done it before. And my boss was in my formation and I sort of said, can I have a go? And he said, why not? And I actually had two attempts and I wasn't successful, Um, which is probably not surprising in a war zone at night at two o'clock in the morning when you've Mm -hmm. never done something before and you have no clearance. But what I learned again that night was about my navigator wanted us to carry on. And I thought, gosh, if I do, it's going to prevent the rest of my team from having a go. And in that moment, I really recognized what being part of a team was all about and also what leadership was about, because you recognize that sometimes to get the job done, you might not be the best person in your team to take that, that them forward. Uh, and as a leader, you've got to make those decisions, even if it didn't involve me. And so I did. I stepped across and let my, my boss and my number three refuel successfully. And when we landed back at base, I did. I felt a little bit of a failure. But ultimately, I recognized that I had made a really good decision. Yeah. The mission was successful that night. And when we held the debrief, which we always do, I learned so much about myself. I learned about how to empower a team, which my boss had done for me. Um, he challenged me. He trusted in me to lead even when the complexity went through the roof. Um, and, and and these were all lessons that I really recognized that overcoming a fear of letting my team down, um, accountability in my decision-making, all these human elements that basically I'd learned in training came to the forefront that one night. And these are the lessons that I recognize that businesses can take away so much from the military and from flying because they are the very same things that create high performance teams within our organizations
1: fantastic so i can i can see now why you know you spend your life speaking and um all over the globe and on, on, on online and offline and and you're in such demand because there's so many lessons aren't there that it can be yeah. parallels and and, and it's such a fascinating um subject
2: yeah, I think it's just interesting that's and I cool. think it appeals to men and women alike. And I think that's the really nice thing is that, you know, often I get invited and you can see the men going brilliant a fast jet pilot and you can see the women going brilliant a yeah. fast jet woman. Yeah. <laughs> So you really tick a lot of boxes, and I think having a really strong female um, speaker as well, you know, for a lot of businesses, really important. It's a really good message to be to be putting out there as well.
1: Definitely. And if you if you you want uh, Mandy at your next event, her uh, website is Miss MandyHickson.com and then contact you through there. Yes, Mandy, and uh, and obviously thank you need to go and buy an office and not a gentleman. Um, from uh, thank you for the people. plug, Chris.
2: You could turn into my new publicist, I think.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you're not they're not, not the only one who said that uh, in the past. And I just wonder if you've got a final message you'd like to leave us with. You've got about 30 seconds to...
2: Yeah, what I would say, guys, is it's one of our mantras is to control the controllables. And if you can't, let it go. And I think it's such a good message to put out there, mm. especially at the moment where there's so much going on in the world. It's so easy to let our stress buckets fill up with things that are completely outside of our sphere of influence. Prioritize on the task in hand. To prioritize on what you can have an impact on, and make that your number one priority, and that will be your ability then to let the rest of it go. It's what's kept me alive at thirty thousand feet.
1: Well, I'm so I'm so pleased that you're alive to tell today to tell us the story. And, <laughs> so uh, am I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm glad you didn't push your look any more than fifty. Um, but it's uh, yeah, it's been amazing to talk to you today. I've always loved our conversations. Um, it's a great book. It's a great story. You're a, a tremendous uh, leader and ambassador and speaker. And yeah, just wish you well in everything that you do.
2: Thanks um, so much, Chris. Such a pleasure to join you as always. Thank and you.
1: Then, and and finally, just on next week's show, we've got another exciting guest next week. We've got um, Sharon Jessup, and Sharon has just on a has been running for three months. She's run across 24 um, African game reserves for rhinos. Uh, she holds the world record for the most um, half ma- consecutive half marathons for a female. 102. Uh, she's been a t- had her own TV show. She's an amazing, amazing woman, and uh, and she's had one heck of an adventure uh, this time. She's had a number of other adventures before, but uh, uh, she tells me I do not know half of what's gone on in this story. And we're going to find out. She's about almost. I think she's probably got a day or two left to go. That's it on this journey. And she's going to join us next week from South Africa to talk about running for rhinos and with lots of inspirational thoughts and ideas. It's going to be great. So join us again next week. Any questions or comments, you know, come back to me. You're welcome to email me at chris at chriscooper.co.uk. If you enjoyed the show, it's lovely to hear from you. Uh, and um, And yeah, check out an officer, not a gentleman. All the very best.